0: Some folks want to get into business for themselves right out of the gate in industries where they've got no experience, and in some cases, those are smashing successes and home
1: runs. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have my host today, Steve Rader. He's the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge. Steve, if you could briefly talk about your company and your background, I think it's, you know, really interesting. Obviously, you came from Sun Edison and basically was the managing director of the Northeast Business Development, and then you decided to start your own company that's both a developer and investor. And then you obviously have other entrepreneurial experiences, so I'm excited. To have you on the show, and I appreciate Garen who works at Summit Ridge for recommending you to be on the podcast. So G- anyone Garen Bischoff, yes, anyone who's interested in being on the podcast, feel free to reach out to us on info at Renew Energy. It's interesting because I knew Garen back when he was at Sun Edison, and he, always would tell me that he had great experience, even back then that which is what now like maybe four years ago, how he had great experiences working with you. So and Garen called
0: me when he was in South Africa to inform me at a certain point that he was moving from the Sun Edison South African business unit to North America that I needed to make a role for him on the team. So
1: by the way, he had a conversation about it to me, because I think his wife now wife was moving to New York for her job. And he wanted to be a part that's of right. Sun Edison. That's right. And then he targeted you. I think he told me he, Cole called he, you
0: actually. Many times, but he eventually worked his way in. That's and that's then, a great uh, came, story. came over to, to the Summer Ridge team early. He's a, a valuable member of the team, yeah.
1: And as Steve calls him, the nicest guy. The nicest in Sol- man
0: in solar, nicest guy in solar for sure. Yeah, the definitely. friendliest.
1: Definitely the friendliest. <laughs> and Garen and I actually met at a vote solar event that's right. in Brooklyn. And him and I were, of course, the last people who were out and about in Brooklyn after this event, and that's how
0: he, hes an optimist. We need that in this space, right? Oh so yeah. He's always uh, well. There's a lot of reason to be optimistic in our space, but it's always good to have somebody that's natural like that. So
1: definitely, and obviously, uh, we, Gary and I, had a connection as well because I used to work at Solar City, which was founded by Lyndon and right. Peter Rive, and then. Elon who are from South Africa and Garen's from South Africa. But sorry to go into this sort of discourse, but we really do appreciate Garen's actually an avid listener of the podcast. He thought Steve would be great. And when he recommended Steve, I was excited because I think Steve really brings a unique perspective. It would be great to kind of hear what you do at Summit Ridge and your background before. Yeah, for sure.
0: Have been in the space doing this for, you know, over a decade at this point, which I always tell people feels <laughs> feels like dog years. It feels more like 70 plus years. It's all I've ever done. But it's been great. It's been great to be in the space when modules were I, I can't even remember
1: a dollar 80, maybe two fifty a or whatever <laughs> it was all the way down
0: to 40 cents, high 30s where we are now precipitous drop in, in cost across the entire supply chain and, you know, in balance of system inverters, racking modules, obviously, first and foremost, which is and really the
1: efficiency. The Efficiency,
0: too. absolutely. Getting more juice from the same footprint. So exciting times to be in the space, still an exciting time. I'm a believer in, in the inevitability of what we're doing. You know, the industry is in many ways unstoppable, despite the complexity that we deal with on a daily basis. You know, it's funny, I get asked, by relatives occasionally if I'm still <laughs> selling or installing solar panels on people's houses and I just say yes, I just leave it at that. <laughs> it's too difficult to kind of describe the, the soup to nuts, the you know start to finish process and what we do is, a, is an arduous one, but it's well worth it. The end game is.
1: Definitely. The end product, I should say. Yeah, definitely. That's helpful to know. I think um, one thing that would be helpful too, and I know we talked about before the podcast interview, obviously there's been challenges with solar, But there's a lot of opportunity as well. You know, there's been fits and starts. You've been on the solar roller coaster for now 10 years. Can you talk about why it's great to be optimistic? It's been challenging because we've needed federal incentives and state level incentives to make the project work. So it's complex. And can you talk about yeah. the, both the pros and cons?
0: And in many cases, we still do need those incentives, but the need is dwindling. And, and I, when I said the inevitability, I think there's a time called the next 10 years where this is the cheapest resource and in, in just about every U.S. market without any kind of subsidy. That's exciting. right? That re- it, that's really exciting. That's really exciting. And I think our industry at times loses sight of that because of the challenges that we face, the complexity mm-hmm. of building these things. Building a, a two megawatt AC project in the middle of the field is a complicated process that requires, you know, one to go through an entire kind of entitlement permitting process and structuring finance and you know making sure that incentives are obtained at the programmatic level. The development complexities I don't see going away ever entirely. I think that the process gets more efficient, but certainly the structuring of the finance, as soon as the tax equity set to step down, the need for state level incentives will continue to decline. And I've witnessed that over the past ten years. So the markets that have opened up, the availability of solar power, not yeah. just to big commercial customers anymore, but to the ratepayer, to residential customers, sure. i.e., community solar, solar, which is really is taking over the CNI industry. It's the it's the way things are headed in almost all of these new CNI markets that are opening up, and in existing CNI markets, it's Definitely. it's where things have been uh, have been moving.
1: And can you talk about how's uh, Subant Ridge different from you know other players in the market? What you guys focus on? I know you've been focused a lot on community solar, and you yeah. get involved from early stages with the landowner to partnering with developers in a co-development arrangement.
0: Many of us, I think, we intimately understand community. When I say community, I mean. Projects who have a majority of the offtake comprised of residential customers, yeah. right? That's in our speak is community solar, which is new. You're facing FICO credit as opposed to you know a Moody's or an S&P credit rating that Definitely. you know your typical investment grade commercial customer has. And, and the, those IG customers were the ones that were really the only ones that were serving as offtake to these projects. Not the only, but the vast majority for the past several years. Community opens up. That opens that up to the residential repair. So I think we really understand the community space intimately. And that goes back to my roots and some of my partner's roots at Sun Edison, where we've been working on this for years. We've been able to attract folk from other organizations as well. As you know, I, I came from Sun Edison. I left the business unit post bankruptcy. Decided not to go with the business unit through uh, the bankruptcy process, which ultimately sold to a Japanese buyer. Really happy that I did so, and, and exactly. was able to bring folks over from other shops to kind of. Create our own brand and identity, our own culture. With a lot of that being lessons learned from Sun Edison and yeah. what and what to do and what not to do, mm-hmm. but also knowing that I needed to inject some fresh blood from other places.
1: Definitely. And can you talk about like your background before Sun Edison as well? Because I think that's interesting, and it would be great. You know, you talked about some of the positives and negatives. Can you talk about too, like what happened to Sun Edison? Maybe not all our our <laughs> listeners, what we call mavericks, yeah. know. I know most people in the solar industry know about it. But I think it would be helpful to talk about your journey, what made you passionate about solar. And I think that would be helpful because it's our show is about entrepreneurship. And it it's interesting to hear some of the reasons why you started your yeah. own company. So I,
0: years ago, had my own sales consultancy that really catered to that mission-critical infrastructure space. I came out of the data center world um, interesting. And, and was fortunate to have some really strong clients, interesting clients. Verizon was one, did some work for James Lee Wood Associates which I think has been rebranded since, but James Lee was the head of FEMA for oh, under, okay. under the Clinton administration. And I met a guy named Scott Sklar, which I think a lot of folks in the industry know who Scott is, Scott's been doing a lot of work in the, in the DOE, the, actually the Department of Defense front for many years. Scott came in and, and talked about distributed generation and the benefits to national security from a resiliency standpoint. So shoring up mission critical infrastructure and, and power outage events. I thought it made a ton of sense, it was intriguing. My brother and I at the time started to roll up our sleeves and really started to understand the economics of the space. Built a handful of small systems kind of regionally, almost as a side project, and then eventually got hooked sure. up. And I'm not, I don't even remember how, with Edison, back in the 09 timeframe. But SunEd at the time was a very different, was a much smaller organization with, with big visions and with some really smart people that went far. The collapse is what it's, it's known for, but some of the most capable folks in the industry came out of SunEd. It was time well spent for sure. It was a lesson in how to scale in this space and creativity. I think a lot of the, the current contractual structures and things that you see in the marketplace with virtual structures, remote structures where Definitely. folks are building systems 30 miles away from from the entities that are buying the power. A lot of that sure. originated, I feel like, with Sun Edison,
1: but also lessons in what not to do. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting to hear your story. And then you basically became, like, managing director of origination in the Northeast. I know you worked, too. I was. So the, I was the managing
0: director, but then I became the uh, the general manager of the East Coast comm- sure. commercial business, CNI business for Senate. Yep.
1: And I remember when we first started talking a few years ago, you were doing a lot at the time with Massachusetts, I think, in the ESHREC was doing a lot of one work. We, program. We, we did a
0: lot of work in Massachusetts. Yeah, we probably— developed and were acquired, you know, upwards of, call it 80 to 100 megawatts in the state, most of which got built. And that's a super stable program. or It is now. I think it was less so then, but Massachusetts is, is one of the stronger solar markets in the country. Massachusetts done a great job of learning from its subsequent programs, previous, I should say, and kind of building off that and listening to developers within the industry. And I think what we see now in the smart program is, you know, one of the better incentive constructs, one of the better incentive programs in the CNI space.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's huge. Basically, it's essentially almost like a feed-in tariff program where you're contracted with the utility for a certain period of time. And it was interesting to me that at that point with SREC-1 that you guys were aggressive because a lot of people weren't sure. And that was like right after the New Jersey market collapsed and there was an artificial price floor that the Massachusetts DOER created. So I remember when I was first met you and we were introduced by... uh, Was it called the minimum standard formula? Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) I remember that. To basically fix oversupply so then you adjust the demand. I remember spending many hours trying to understand that calculation and talking to Mike Judge. But I thought it was really interesting at the time that you guys were extremely bullish on that because it became a very lucrative incentive and people weren't at that time very sure. So it was interesting, you know, when we're... We were aggressive
0: and, and not as much within the C&I business unit. I will almost call it more creative. The company was aggressive and, yes. and, and ultimately probably too much so, but not within the commercial business. I think we, we, we were fortunate to have a lot of smart folks that were at the leading edge of the industry in contractual constructs and financing solutions that have since been repeated many times. Definitely. What I've seen in this in the industry is that finance gets comfortable over time, right? You, yeah. you saw the tax equity and lenders start to get comfortable with SREC markets. I think Massachusetts went a long way towards writing the issues that had happened in New Jersey. The Massachusetts DOA looked at what happened in New Jersey and, and took great lengths to kind of put a program in place that, that was different and that was more stable, that was easier to underwrite. And you know, we've seen that kind of come all the way to, to the SMART program where it's definitely one of the easiest markets to finance. But the industry, the financing community, project finance has a way of of getting comfortable with with structures over time. It just takes some time. Community solar is is no different than that. Underwriting FICO score instead of investment grade commercial entities is something that certain lenders are going to be more comfortable with versus others. We found that lenders who have more distinct experience in that kind of residential or co-op space are, are ahead of the curve, as opposed to some of your traditional lenders in the space. But it'll come around. It'll come around. And as financing options become more numerous in the space, you'll see more and more community built. We know we're ready. We're developing community assets ourselves in multiple markets, and we're acquiring from other developers in multiple markets.
1: Sure. And can you talk about what states you prefer to develop projects? We're
0: heavy in the Maryland market right now. That wasn't planned necessarily, but being based in Arlington, Virginia, and being a Maryland guy, and a few of our folks live in Maryland, it's our backyard. It makes sense. It's easier for us to support. We've got three projects under construction now. We've got a a number of rooftop projects. We co-developed what I think is the largest all-residential project yet on a landfill in Maryland that's set to reach COD here, we think, in the next 30 days or so. So Maryland has been a has been a big market for us. We're active in New York. You you and I were talking about VETER. I've got the old VETER rate stack up here on the whiteboard.
1: We're in Summit Ridge's beautiful office in Arlington, Virginia. And I was laughing (laughs) because they have a whole uh, sort of breakdown of of VETER. And uh, if you're not familiar, it's a value of distributed energy resources that New York has. And there's a couple of different components. I know we were talking about the DRV which changes after two years, Three LMP, years, yeah. which is so basically it's very different program and it's a lot more complicated because you have these different components and these different components can be variable, which makes it completely challenging. And I don't, I don't know if this podcast is the, the best place well, to, go, not. to go. Into We're going to lose
0: everybody if we get into that right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. But uh, it seems like you guys are actively looking in New York. Um, we played in New York for a long time. We developed sure. a large R&M
0: portfolio. That was kind of the, the the previous two programs ago. We had built a big portfolio there, so we, we understand the market. Not that the R&M program was the Vita program, Definitely, but that's, that's, that's probably that its own separate yeah. podcast. But New York's a market <laughs> yeah. that we're in. We're actively taking land positions in select markets like New Jersey, which you and sure. I were talking about earlier, more limited in scale. The Illinois Lottery for the adjustable block program is set to happen occur here on wednesday of this week so we've got dozens of projects that we submitted so fingers crossed we'll see what gets picked that that was one of the the more i'll call it interesting programs that we've ever kind of played in but again fingers crossed i think it'll all it'll turn out okay illinois is poised to i think look back and learn from the program that's in place today and, sure. and do something a lot better and more robust here on a go for basis. So I'm pretty optimistic that's going to happen.
1: D- definitely. And I know, I think your brother's based in the Midwest as well. He's you in guys Chicago, have, yeah. And you guys have an office as well in Chicago and New York we outside do. of your primary office here in Arlington, Virginia. We do. Absolutely. You know, you briefly touched on it the reason why you're focused on New Jersey is New Jersey has the community solar pilot, which is basically 75 megawatts per year. I know we were both talking before the podcast that it could be challenging because it's such a small program. But you guys have been looking at land opportunities there. We're looking at land. We've been looking at roofs. Roofs as well. So it, yeah, yeah. It, it's small. I, I think that's a program that's that's set to grow as sure.
0: well. New Jersey, you know, was for a time there the leader on the East Coast. And I think there's a desire to kind of take their place back is, is one of the, the leading markets from an installation standpoint. So we're excited. We're excited. It's, it, New Jersey's been somewhat dormant for, you know, that's not to say that systems haven't been being built on a monthly basis. I, I know that's still the case, but, you know, compared to markets like Massachusetts, they've, they've kind of lost ground.
1: Yeah, definitely. That is huge. Have you looked at Pennsylvania? I know Pennsylvania has a community solar pilot that came out two or three weeks ago. Is that something? Or is I, don't, too I, so early? I don't know
0: if that, the program is final yet, but oh, yes, Pennsylvania, final, Pennsylvania yeah. is a market that, that we're very interested in. I mean, you know this, Benoit, these these <laughs> it's a fight to get these programs passed at the state level, right? We just saw yeah. New Mexico went down in flames there at the 11th hour. I don't think that it's permanently dead, leap, but it's on ice for- for at least now, I think we were hopeful that something could get done in Nevada. It didn't quite happen. Definitely. So there's a lot of start-stop in the industry. I think over time, we'll we'll see it become a more widely accepted, even in regulated markets, we'll see solar become more widely accepted. It already is, but you'll see community programs open sure. up. And I think that's the, on a go for basis, not the only way, but... The highest likelihood of new incentive programs making it through any type of state legislature is they got to include the rate payer. You've got to let the, the the residents participate.
1: Definitely. And I think it's huge because you're basically, instead of going wholesale, you're able to get some sort of discount to the residential rate, which potentially makes the projects more attractive.
0: You're able to sell these, what amounts to monetary credits to residential customers remotely. So for some of the listeners, we're not physically installing solar you know, on that's on a on a, a person's point, rooftop, yeah. they're they're buying the solar power remotely, which I think if given the chance, most people prefer. I may eat my words on that, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the truth. Right, that's that, that, the truth. So, yeah. That's a great point. And can you talk about too, like some of the challenges really with community solar as well? We were talking about it before the podcast is like the acquisition of customers, management. There's a lot of, you know, companies coming out there who are saying they're experts at acquiring community solar. It seems like the costs seem to be pretty high to acquire these customers. Like, what's been your sort of experience? Yeah, because every, you guys every, actually own projects or are part of projects. Yeah, as well.
0: we we do, and and on a on a go forward basis here. The the second phase of Summit Ridge is is set to launch here in the next handful of weeks. Where I'm excited, we'll be owning and operating all the systems we develop or acquire on a go forward basis. There's been a lot of work behind the scenes on that, so more on that soon. But. Like everybody talks about community, right? Community, I mean, it's yeah. it's the buzzword in the industry right now. When it comes down to it, there just haven't been that many projects with residential customers Definitely. serving as the offtake. There haven't been that many projects built. So some of the challenges, I mean, the challenges have been numerous. One is on the financing front, right? Yeah. So getting getting more so lenders comfortable. Uh, if, you, if you look, you and I know that the the primary portions of the capital stack really are there's three. There's tax equity, cash equity, and there's debt. Most Cash equity investors are looking for levered returns, and there are a handful of lenders that, more than a handful, that have been operating the space for years. Once you introduce residential customers into the mix, we found that, that many of the permanent lenders, debt providers, have been reticent. It's just new, it's too new.
1: Definitely. It's, fe-
0: it's facing FICO score instead of kind of investment grade commercial entities. So great strides over the past, I would almost say 18 months in particular, almost yeah. 12 months, but really great strides on, on the debt front. We've got a great partner that we're excited to be working with here. I think tax equity, there's a handful of players that have gotten comfortable with the space and have been for quite some time. And tax equity is largely out of the deal in five, six years. So, sure. it's, so it's a little bit different. And then just getting getting cash equity investors comfortable that you're going to have X number of residential customers on a system. And those customers that are there day one won't be the same customers Definitely. necessarily that are there in year ten, right? There's going to be churn true. for multiple, you know, for multiple reasons. There'll be default folks, move folks, die, things happen. So getting the capital stack comfortable with community solar has been a challenge, but I think we're there. That's number one. And then two is the the sourcing of the customers. These aggregators, a lot of them are, are smaller entities. Just like you know, the the development community is largely comprised of smaller developers. The ones that we've worked with have a lot of talent. They're very good at going out and sourcing customers, mm-hmm. but there are smaller entities that uh, can be harder to underwrite. And that's who you're... That's who you're... It's a, it's a marriage of sorts, it right? Because these solar contracts or the, the life of the system is kind of 20 to 35-year horizon, right? And a lot of the incentive programs that are in place are upwards of 20 years. So the notion is that you'll have residential customers, in some cases, and commercial customers, but you'll have that residential customer buying... The power derivative in the Definitely. form of a net metering credit—you'll—they'll be buying that over over a long term. So you've got to partner with somebody that's going to be in the deal for a minimum of several years, right? Definitely. I, mean, I don't think we've signed a twenty-year contract, but you're not just signing a one-year contract. I think there'll be consolidation in that space sure. eventually. You and I were talking about this. Yes. Utilities are really the natural fit for that role. Definitely. Depending on the market, that could come sooner rather than later. later. But and then in other markets, I think it's going to come later.
1: Sure, yeah, definitely that makes sense. And also, I, you but mentioned- some of the utilities, by the way, and I mean, mm-hmm. they, sure, they know it's an opportunity. Some
0: of these, the utilities that we work with in these de- and the deregulated markets understand that it's an opportunity. Yeah, they already control the customer. Definitely, you know, there's a stickiness factor there. They can upsell the customer, so it's it's just a it could be and it is in some cases viewed cool. as a compelling kind of additional revenue stream that they could could earn.
1: Yeah. Then as well, they have the experience managing the customer. Then it's easier for the customer for everything to be on one bill. Yep. So that's pretty interesting as well. And, you know, you mentioned about Maryland. I know in the community solar pilot, there's a LMI, a low income component to it.
0: There is. And I said this earlier, most of these
1: new incentive programs that are making
0: it through the state, various state legislatures, have a community component with we residential customers, but there's also a carve out for LMI. As frankly, I think there should be.
1: Yeah.
0: Maryland has a carve out in terms of capacity that's allocated for those customers. Sure, there's no additional incentive. Other markets will provide an additional incentive to help with the with the underwriting process. Definitely, um, I haven't gone as deep as I, I want to and I need to at some yeah. point. But I think there's some really compelling data out there that says that LMI customers are every bit as likely to make the payment on a monthly basis because it's meaningful. It's, cool. it's meaningful savings. The, the Posigen guys, I think, have been at the forefront oh, of that space for a long time and have some, I remember hearing their CEO had some data points that were, that were really compelling. So yeah. there is an LMI component, multiple markets. You know, we, We've sure. kind of started to embrace that. And it's something that, that we plan on incorporating into our development activities here.
1: Definitely. And it seems like, uh, as you said, more community solar programs are including an LMI component, like this new program in New Jersey, the pilot right. has an LMI component as well. And then we were talking about that my company were are developing um, on the New York Housing Authority, and part of it that the New York Housing Authority is requiring that there's an LMI component for the basis of subscription into yeah. the program. So it's interesting. It seems, you know, everyone wants a program that, and specifically, politicians as well, where everyone has access to it, not just certain residential customers based on FICO score. Yeah, for
0: sure. Mass was was kind of first there, right? We we, yes. we probably signed up 14, 15 different housing authorities. My team did well at Sun Edison uh-huh. because the Massachusetts, you know, the SREC two program incentivized that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, that was And true. made
0: a made a you know, made a real impact. Yeah, yeah. There's and it was all remotely cited for the most part, yeah. right? Because there's physical constraints in any major urban area for the most part or any you know where where the we struggle to find land in New York City for instance just mm-hmm. like we did in Boston just like you do in Fall River just like you do sure. in, in New Bedford and folks that we worked with in the past so being able to build you know a 3 megawatt system call it miles away and then sell the power contractually was just a huge benefit
1: yeah yeah definitely that makes a lot of sense and it sounds like you guys are in the forefront because i feel like a lot of people haven't been really thinking about that. And you've been involved since day one with the SREC-2 program. Yeah,
0: we've been trying. And again, like you said, it's a growing component. Most of these markets really is.
1: Yeah. And one of my questions is, like, what trends are you seeing in solar? I know we talked about some trends, but specifically in community solar, talking about LMI, residential offtake. Obviously, there'll be a time, which you mentioned, which is a great point about grid parity, where we're not dependent on incentives going forward is there any other you know storage i know storage mentioned- is,
0: that's the low-hanging fruit right that's the I, th- I think most of these programs are are incorporating storage at most of these programs at the state level i should say incorporating you know some form of, of storage incentive as they should you know for multiple reasons it, it, it makes all the sense of the world there's that you know, the dispatchability of storage compared to solar modules which are intermittent resources sure. which work during the day you've got to be able to Save the power. the The systems aren't working at night, and then there's ancillary service markets. There's a, a whole host of other reasons why incorporating storage makes sense, and will continue to make sense on a go forward basis. At Sun Edison, we we my team. And this is something we've looked into here at Summit Ridge. We we submitted I think 30 megawatts into the four capacity sure ISO New England four capacity market and achieved additional revenue from the systems yeah. that way while. Well, being able to participate in, a, in an ancillary service market that you know satisfied a real need at the market level, so I think I think there's some interesting go-forward opportunities with ancillary services. Mm-hmm. I think there's an, a way to kind of design these systems on a go-forward basis yeah. to take advantage of some future opportunities, some future repowering opportunities.
1: Definitely, that, that's a great point.
0: Um, and then contractual structures continue to evolve. I'd like to think that the opportunity in the near term is that just flat out new markets will open up right yeah, that this stuff will be allowed in, a, in, in down south for instance and sure. the, the regulated utilities will start to embrace it more not that they have it in their own way right yeah. Duke's a great example in North North is, what second or third biggest solar market in the us most folks don't know that yeah they've had a, a super stable program forever Georgia Power's been a, a sure, been an active participant yeah. but there are mar- there are certain markets that just Flat out, there's no real opportunity at this point. Yeah, one would hope that that would change. Know, Florida keeps coming to mind, right? Yeah,
1: Florida seems like it's slowly changing. Yeah, feels like it might be. Florida I mean- Power and Light has really kind of controlled the market and really hasn't allowed solar. And PPAs were illegal, and they're not, I think, anymore. So maybe maybe that I, I should know that, <laughs> but, I, but, but I don't. I mean, the problem is right. What makes it so complicated? Every state is so unique. You know, when you talk about a community solar program in Massachusetts, it's totally different than what's in Maryland or New Jersey. And then 100%. even within yeah. utility zones in the same state, to understand all the policy that's happening, it's just you need like a whole team of people. To you do. Kinda, I mean,
0: regulatory affairs folks are, are invaluable in our space. And, you know, most of the larger developers have someone on staff that's that's kind of. Advocating for that developer's position within the market, but also staying on top of the proposed programmatic legislation or making sure Sure. that your programs continue or expand. That's something that, you know, we we engage external resources for. It's, It's super valuable. And I don't mean this in the wrong way, but hopefully at some point that won't be as valuable oh, because definitely. this stuff just gets easier and and it's less dependent on both state and fed incentives. That's the game. Man. That's that's the end game, right? That's what we're all waiting
1: for. Because then that's, we're all waiting for, man. Yeah, then it's exponential to another level. Even though, you know, the growth of the industry, it's getting there. Been, I mean,
0: some of these some of these all in costs that I hear about down, yeah. you know, particularly down south on these utility scale plants, it's just it's amazing. It's yeah. well, well under a buck.
1: Yeah, which is pretty amazing. I, I don't think. 10 years ago or any of these research companies would have projected total bill cost, you know, below a dollar a watt, which is pretty amazing. It's to pretty kind amazing. Of see.
0: When I say utility scale, I mean, you're, you're in that range of kind of the five to 10 meg depending on which market you're at, right. Yeah. Depending on the cost of labor. So exciting.
1: It's definitely very exciting. Kind of to switch gears a little bit, you know, you talked about your story and before Sun Edison, you had your own company And then obviously now Summit Ridge, you know, this podcast is about entrepreneurship. Can you talk about like what's made you want to become an entrepreneur? You talked a little bit about why you started Summit Ridge. And can you talk about like anyone who's thinking about being an entrepreneur? Like what suggestions would you have for them? In both cases, I felt like I was, I had been in the space, the market for many
0: years. I had been in, in the data center, kind of that mission critical space for years. This is going way back and felt like I could do what I was doing for my former company you yeah. know, on a standalone basis, and felt like I had the the legs to stand on. And then, really, particularly so, and that was in my twenties. You know, post kind of being in the business for several years, and at Sun Edison for six or seven years, really had a high degree of confidence that that with the right folks, we could apply lessons learned and, and do it our way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Without getting into specifics, there was a lot of things that that I saw that could be improved upon or or flat out kind of reverse engineered and, and, you know, put back together a, a better way where we could ultimately wind up with a better product and we could fulfill our right. commitments to our clients and our investors in a, in a better way. So my advice would be that know your space. And I think the timing is somewhat natural. Some folks want to get into business for themselves right out of the gate in industries that where they've got no experience. And in some cases, those are smashing successes and home runs, yeah. innovation, right? New technologies, in more established industries, which I would dare say that the <laughs> that the crazy solar industry is at this point, having that comprehensive understanding of the space came with time to where there was a comfort level that I, that I knew I knew what I wanted to do, and I thought I knew how to do it. you know, and knock on wood. I think we're doing an okay job. it's at Summit Ridge. One of those lessons learned, by the way, is to kind of stay small, right? You can do a lot in the space. you don't need, 95 bodies or 200 Definitely. 200 bodies kind of lived that game and saw that one of the hallmarks of this industry is that Your burn is always a few, you know steps <laughs> ahead of inflows <laughs> and that's just kind of business 101, right? You, you with, with the right folks you can do good things in this space without having to staff up to 100 bodies So the goal here is to kind of stay below that 30 employee threshold for the foreseeable future We're under 20 now. We've got sure. we got to staff up a little bit. We've got some holes that we've got to fill. But that's a good thing. That's because Definitely. that's because of increased work, increased project level work.
1: That's great, Tyrion. By the way, I've lived it as well, working at previous solar companies, you know, the churn and the burn. And then the challenge that, you know, you were kind of alluding to in the development game, it takes a long time to kind of build these projects. And from initial sort of site selection to negotiating with the landowner, permitting lumpy. interconnection, it's lumpy. It's very lumpy. And, you know, most developers get paid mostly... At notice to proceed, which is basically construction ready or COD. I mean, depending on the milestones of what's negotiated, so you could be talking about year, year and a half, two years. Which we, we used to talk about a flow business. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard Flo- about this Flo- flow. By the way, I heard this at another flow business. Uh, was, com- the, was, yeah. the, was the
0: was the solar development? Unfortunately, is not so much a flow business. No, there are things you can do to to fill in the gaps. I think having a nice mix of both ground mount and rooftop projects, sure. for instance, behind the meter projects. And in front of the meter, virtual projects is a good mix and that the peaks and valleys aren't, you know, too far uh, apart from one another. But there are things that happen that are outside of any developer's Definitely. control that, you know, you've got to take into account. And so when there are a lot of mouths to feed and when there are folks that are sitting on the bench kind of in between portfolio development activities, that's been the death knell for many a solar company, I feel like. Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. We've seen it, especially, too, when you talk about the national players, because it feels like the regional developers have a competitive advantage because they have relationships and people are like... That's right. it's It's all about relationships at the end. And I thought it was interesting because you initially, before you were in solo, worked for a data center company, and then you kind of had your own thing, which data centers are obviously an ideal location. For solar. We so
0: we have looked at a number of, of data centers. Most data centers don't want panels on their roofs yeah. for a variety of reasons. And a lot of the larger data centers that serve as co-location facilities or hosting facilities that have excess land have kind of different things in mind from a master planning sure, standpoint. That's they true. want to that's build set you know additional facilities. Yeah. So data centers, we're actually talking to, to a large data center right now, actually, about selling power. But via a,
1: corporate PPA, via, corporate PBA, via uh-huh.
0: you know synthetic PPA, where we're selling from an off-site located system, or frankly, systems plural. In fact, we're yeah. talking to this one data center about selling upwards of a couple dozen, the output from a couple dozen sure. solar farms. Oh, so just interesting. Just to give you an idea of the power usage. So great application there. Yes. And, and by the way, you're starting to see more of those power wheeling type contracts. Where Definitely. You're injecting at one node and managing your basis risk. And
1: sure.
0: And power is coming out of another node, and then you're going to a third-party supplier like a direct and having them kind of manage the, the accounts being applied to the PJM subaccount sure. or whatever it may be. Those kind of synthetic corporate PPAs, PPAs are becoming Contract for differences. Contract for differences, exactly. Yeah. Some of Virginia, I think a- AWS. yeah, AWS
1: right. has been doing a lot of that because they have the 100 percent renewable energy goals, and then they've been working with Dominion, yeah. predominantly on you know having those sort of corporate people. A lot of utility development in Virginia. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's tons. yeah. I'm actually uh, speaking at a conference tomorrow in Virginia and Richmond. About uh, landfill brownfield development on solar, and if you do research on the Virginia market, a lot of everything's pretty much being developers are selling uh, land opportunities, basically mostly to Dominion, and yeah. then Dominion's basically a- acting as the go-between, because to get these data centers and all the data center construction, not just with Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft. Dominion's basically saying we'll make sure that you have 100% renewables, and they don't want like a wreck. Obviously, they want, right? You know, some right. sort of corporate PPA offsite. So it's interesting. It's our home state, man. We got to turn around
0: and start doing some more things in Virginia. We've, yeah. we've started to talk about it a lot internally. Most everything we do is kind of at that distribution level. Yeah. Stayed away from transmission, transmission, utility scale projects just because of the the size of the organization and the goal and and where our focus has been. Right with with community true community We've got residential customers that's not to say that there that there won't be community programs that, that pop up in the south because we're i think we're already starting to see it yeah maybe sleeved through the utility but sure but you're i think there's actually a couple of the florida co-ops have, have programs similar to what interesting
1: I yeah like if virginia has like their new energy master plan they have uh big goals for renewables and then i think uh de shaw signed some sort of agreement with the cooperative to basically they provided a long-term PPA and D.E. Shaw is going to own, I forget how many megawatts it, Got it was, but it's what interesting. System
0: built in Virginia? In Virginia, okay.
1: system built in Virginia. Yeah. So it's interesting to kind of see that. I think that's a, going to be a continued trend. Virginia is just an ideal place. It seems like For data centers and yeah, and AWS plans on building a lot, and obviously Amazon has their second corporate headquarters over here in uh, Crystal City. In Crystal City, so it seems like they're you know very invested in there for sure. Yeah, definitely. Right here in Roslyn, right now. Yeah, speak and Watch the planes flying over behind you here. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I mean, this is a beautiful building and location. You guys are like the ideal. This is this is beautiful Class C office space. Is what yeah. I would call
0: it. <laughs> that's, thanks, Benoit. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it
1: was pretty cool actually coming with the big logo. And you guys did a great job with the office. And uh, yeah, man, that's like the one the solar
0: developers. We try to keep it. We try to keep it lean. lean. That that sign though was uh, I think took a few months, but that's. Probably the nicest thing we have in here. Yeah, that, that is pretty impressive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this
0: is the building where the the whole Watergate. Uh, deep oh, you throat were telling me about yeah, this in a actually. Yeah, wow.
1: Yeah. So it's a History. historical landmark. You, you were telling me this it's, when we were hanging out in San historical. Diego. Yeah, at the happy that's, hour. That's the claim
0: to fame of this building. So this was class A office space in the '70s. Yeah, a while ago though a while ago. Well, hey, as you we said. We might be
1: moving. We're growing. We're moving over the street. Well, I think I think the good thing, which is really important, is it seems like you guys are very about adding value and building a great team and not having a big overhead, which allows you to be nimble. And then, you know. Yeah, you mentioned some of the regional
0: developers that I've been working with for years, right? Blue Wave, awesome shop, right? These yeah. guys are, are, and one of the reasons why they're so good is they've just. Focused in a couple of markets and primarily one, Massachusetts. And yeah. They understand it intimately. Are involved at the regulatory construct level, programmatic construct level, and and you know they've had a, a steady business for years. Never really a national player that was ever up at Sun Edison or Solar City or Sun Power level. But yes. but uh, you see folks like that at the at the regional level who've done well for a long time because they've done it right. Right. So that there's there are other examples of folks Definitely. out there um, who have kind of grown on a measured basis and you know have, have really dove into a, a handful of select markets It's tough yeah. to be everything to everybody
1: in the space oh it definitely is. that's a great point
0: it is you got to navigate the ups and the downs so you've got to. it has been cyclical i see it the runway is growing longer and longer and things are becoming more predictable i say that sure. just as the the tariffs hit us last year right That was like <laughs> yeah. a, a club to the back of the head for a lot of us I, definitely folks didn't see it coming but Hopefully there's no more big surprises like that. Mm-hmm. You know, as the, the cost structure continues to drop, I don't think we're going to see it precipitously drop the way we have over the past several years, but things are getting, the construction process is getting more oh, efficient. Definitely. Modules will continue to, to drop somewhat in cost yeah. and efficiency will continue to increase. It just becomes more predictable, right? As those as those incentives are, are less and less required, this thing becomes, uh, it becomes unstoppable, right? Definitely,
1: the future is bright for solar it's exciting i
0: I think so you know you hear uh, it shouldn't be political right and i I, I think the cost structure and whenever you're able to offer power at levels equal to or less than the kind of incumbent utility when there's little to no incentives there's you know I, i i wouldn't expect that we'll see any pushback i mean you don't markets where that's currently the case definitely so I'm an optimist when it comes to our future prospects.
1: Definitely, I think a big point you also mentioned before the podcast is energy independence as well. When you, you you're using solar versus other there's forms a, there's of energy,
0: a, there, there's a resiliency. There's a there's frankly a national security aspect yes. to distributed that generation, national
1: security right? is huge. Yes.
0: One of the biggest vulnerabilities is our electrical infrastructure because it's you know we're being powered by centralized plants, and so having a, a series of distributed power plants located throughout a given market or region, or even just taking it a step further and having one's home, the roof be comprised of solar shingles. I think that Tesla product, by the way, is <laughs> awesome. You see that thing? I have. I mean, yeah. it, there's just inherent kind of resiliency that ultimately that provides as opposed to to being subject to the, the health of the local power grid. And, and not that that's changing in the next handful of years because yeah. we're going to have wires for many, many years oh, many, we all know it to come, but, but there's a, a resiliency play that, Is often,
1: it's not spoken of much. No, it's surprising. It is surprising. Because everyone is always talking a lot about the repair, but what about the resiliency or some of the other aspects with not having to upgrade the grid when you have solar or other renewables, especially when you talk about storage? I mean, you know, I was impacted by Sandy and we didn't have power for- Right. Weeks, right? For two weeks. And, uh, you know, obviously if- You had your self-contained solar and storage that wouldn't have been an issue, was because the transmission distribution lines, right, you know, went out. And so, I think it's a big thing that unfortunately, I guess we as an industry have to do a better job talking about national security and independence. And unfortunately, there hasn't been, you know, many upgrades to the grid. And this, especially in the Northeast, right? especially in the Northeast, you've got
0: just a really kind of oldest population centers in the country are. You've got aging infrastructure. Again, those wires aren't going anywhere anytime soon. But in the case of a Sandy, if I mean, I'm, not, I'm not sure that the old solar shingles could have withstood hurricane force winds. But just in a normal outage situation where if your roof was solar yeah. and you had a battery in your garage, right, your car was electric, all three kind of work, work yeah. in concert with one other in tandem. That's compelling, right? As it opposed, is as opposed to having your being dark for days. It happens <laughs> yeah. every year with us. I mean, we'll we'll get a bad storm in the summer. Oh, yeah, it's like, yeah this happens year, without, in Virginia, without,
1: Maryland, DC. Without fail.
0: It's gonna happen. Yeah. Then I bought a I bought a generator for my house. Oh. Sold that house. When I bought the generator, the power never went out, so I never got to use it. <laughs> yeah. Now it goes out all the time, and I know if I buy
1: one, it's just It's Murphy's Law. It's Murphy's Law. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. Yeah, definitely. I
0: need the battery. I gotta get the old get the battery in the house, yeah. You can't go to the natural gas generator, that'd be that'd be blasphemous,
1: yeah. That would be blasphemous, but <laughs> <laughs> but there are plenty of people in the renewable energy industry driving Ford F 150s, so. yes. <laughs> yeah. you,
0: hey, you got to bring gear, you got to bring
1: gear to the site, right? Yeah, yeah, you gotta, definitely.
0: You got to move those panels around somehow, seriously. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, Steve, this has been an amazing interview. You know, if people want to learn more about Summit Ridge or they want to get in contact with you or Summit Ridge, what's the best way to reach out?
0: Yeah, I think just probably via our website, which is srenergy.com, www.srenergy.com. Great. We've got all our contact information there for sure.
1: Definitely. And I have one more question. Shoot. Sorry, I apologize. You obviously raise money for this venture. How was that process? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs go out there and raise money, and they they weren't successful. Can you? Pre- I raise working pre- capital. Yeah. Oh, you is, were raised which working is, capital. That's the hardest. That's the, the hardest, hardest trade. Money to raise. Yeah. yeah.
0: That was. Look, I've got great partners in Aligned Climate Capital, formerly Aligned Intermediary. Sure. Got um, you know, any Peter Davidson's the head of the shop. He's a Good friend of mine, and you know, used to run the loan program office under the Obama administration for a period of time. I got lucky, and, and I had met them some years earlier, and, and it didn't seem to be the time. It was the right time and the right place with the right folks, and they really helped syndicate the investment. They We pulled in multiple investors, which enabled me to kickstart this thing. Definitely. So so in many respects, that is the hardest capital to raise, and that folks are betting on the, the person or the people and the team, and it's the most at risk, right? Because it's, you know, what did he say at the time, which is one of, I'll never forget, it was he said you don't invest in broadway shows restaurants or solar devcos <laughs> <He> <laughs> that's
1: said, pretty I, funny but i'm
0: going to invest in you this time so Yeah. It, it was uh just like any development shop it's, sure. it's a chance but it's but it it was something i felt really strongly about and when i Definitely. left my you know my previous employer was kind of the cleanest clearest decision i i knew was right and i knew what i wanted to do and and uh it came together so but not without its challenges i would recommend i would recommend it though to sure. to, to the right folks at the right time if it feels right you got to go for it you never know you, you got to if the desire is to go off and start your own thing you go around this thing once right yeah and you, you don't do want to have
1: the regret right? absolutely right. that's the worst yeah. part and I, I, yeah.
0: I had had sun Edison never kind of collapsed the way it did in kind of spectacular fashion yeah. uh, i'd probably still be there right because yeah. there was a, a time when things were ah I anyway debatable <laughs> definitely I may not have done this though so sure
1: yeah with life you never know and it seemed like that everything seemed to align at that point point. and that's that's yeah. great to hear about your story and it's congratulations on obviously the Maryland projects that are coming online and then obviously you talked a little bit about how you're gonna be investing in and owning uh, your projects going forward, going so on forward those on on are going huge. basis yeah
0: yeah we'll have more on that soon we'll we'll be making a, a kind of a, a announcement in the in the next several weeks but uh exciting times yeah definitely proud and of my team here at Summit ridge we've we've managed to do okay since we started which in this space is uh it's not the easiest thing so
1: definitely it's pretty impressive as someone who's been in the industry for a while it's been thanks man it's been pretty impressive so thank you again for your time today to learn more about summit ridge again as, as steve said go to srenergy.com we'll actually have it as well in the notes and. Thank you again, Thanks, and no, I appreciate uh, it. we hope to have you or even Garen on the podcast as well. Thank you, Garen, for setting this up. Anytime. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now. Building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can.